James chapter 4. So let's recap to make sure we are actually on the right track because, again, it doesn't do you any good to just start in chapter 4 without having any idea what's gone on before. We need that information. So in light of our need for wisdom and what that means for our lives, in light of our living out of our faith as the only way to actually prove that it exists, and in light of our need for discipline in the face of sin, both inward reality and outward expression, Let's start defining that sin and dealing with where it comes from and how we get it to go away. Does that sound like fun? See, you think it would sound like fun, but it's not going to be fun. It's going, it's going to be the beatings today. So, yeah, no. As with everything else, yeah, we're going to need a good light day because we get some good heavy material. But again, it is for our good and for God's glory. So let us dive right in with verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? That's a good question. I would like to know that, wouldn't you? It's how to win friends and influence people or something like that. No, no, no. We're not, we're not doing any of that, but we're going to deal with what's going wrong in the world. Now, real quick, who's the problem? We yeah, we are, so we know that. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? I, I like James because James presents things the way that I have the bad habit of presenting them to you, which is as a question. So James loves a rhetorical question, and I'll be honest with you, so do I, because it just we all know what the answer is. So what's the answer? Is not the source of quarrels and conflicts our pleasures that wage war in our bodies? And the answer to that is yes. Because what do I want? What I want, and when do I want it? Now. Now, what does God provide? And there's a lot of times a big difference between what I want and what I need. Scripture is not concerned with what you want. Again, initial foray, your introduction to Christian living is what? Your repentance and turning away from your sin. What is your sin? Where does your sin come from, Christian? It comes from you. So to turn away from my sin is to turn away from me and what I want. This is how you start. You don't get to start there and then continue on the path by saying, ooh, do I get what I want this time? How about this time? We can't be the kid at the ice cream store. I want that. I don't care what you want. We're not getting, you're not getting ice cream, okay? (laughs) I got a pout. It's a good day. So, Scripture cares about what you need. So let's rewind in James. What do I need? Go back to chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So starting point, I need to think rightly. I need to be grounded in wisdom, which comes from God. Remember, this is always our formula. This will never, ever change because people don't ever, ever change apart from this. I don't change behavior. The message and the work, the work of the gospel through the Holy Spirit changes my heart. That changes what I want in this world in alignment with who God is and what he has commanded. That then changes how I think about the world, which then changes how I actually live in the world. That's why James continues in chapter 1. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flower and grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So what does that look like? It looks like James in chapter 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? 
Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. In other words, you claim to be wise. You claim to understand who God is and what he has done. Therefore, we will know this by how you live. We will see this in your life over time. This is, again, why I've always pointed out to you. How do you know? Like, How do you know that you're secure in Christ? Do you remember what song you played years ago and how it made you feel and what they were singing in the church? Do you remember what the water felt like when they baptized you or that time you were at church when they did that amazing sermon? You don't, you don't look at any of that. At the end of the day, that stuff fades away. What you look at is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, that progress that you are making. And again, how do we gauge progress? Do we celebrate that? Yeah. Yes, yes, we do. We take Ever, I, I joke about this during announcements when somebody says, I have some good news. Yes, we celebrate how much of the good news that we get. All of it, because let's be honest, how much of life is bad news? I mean, what's, what's the old line about the news? How do they decide what goes on the six o'clock hour? If it bleeds, it leads. We want bad news. You let, that's, that's an actual thing. That goes back to when I was a kid. That's why when you used to watch, when people actually watched the six, the six o'clock news, what, was, what were the first stories? The first 20 minutes of the news was what? Who got shot? Who robbed the bank? Who did this? What happened over here? And then we have like a three-minute human interest story before we got to do weather, sports, and then like show you a picture of a cat falling off of a perch or something, and then we're done. Like, there you go. I just described every news half hour from what? 1972 to 1996, give or take. I mean, there's, there's the news. Why? Yeah, probably could. <laughs> but this is what ends up happening because this is how life is. We're drawn to the brokenness. We're drawn to the interest of the evil things of the world. Christian, in Christ, it ought not be this way. How do you ensure that? By focusing on what is good and beautiful, and pure, and righteous in Christ, and then living for those things. And again, as you do that, it's a slow, methodical walk, but it accomplishes something. And over time, you get places. As I said, don't look, am I better than I was last week? Well, let's hope so, but that's not what we're talking about in Christian sanctification. Are you better than you were five years ago? Are you better than you were 10 years ago? 15, 20, 25, if God gives you breath, 30, 40 years, look back on the work that the Holy Spirit has done, because this is what he has promised to do, and this is what he is doing in the wisdom that is imparted and in the changing of the heart that he has already accomplished. So you look at the long term, and by the way, as you're gauging your life moving forward, you have to play a long game there as well, because what happens if I try to go from here to there like this? How much, what are my odds of success? No, in order to go over there, I have to be looking where? This is your driving analogy. When you took your driver's ed class years and years ago, if you, if you can remember that far back. I'm not picking, just saying. <laughs> when they started teaching you, what's the number one mistake so many beginning drivers make? They grab the wheel and look where? Right in the front of the car. That's why when you get in the car with a 15, 16-year-old, you're all nauseous because the kid's doing this because they're looking where? Right over the front of the car, and you can't do that. You have to look out. And then those little small corrections that you make don't feel like anything because they're being made by feel and not by sight. You can't do it that way. Christian, this is how you have to walk in the world. Eyes on the prize, paying attention to the kingdom that Christ is building, to the work that he has done, not being so myopic that you're following yourself. That's why I read the Ecclesiastes um, verse that a section that I read this morning. 
Did you notice the pronouns of verses um, 1 through 10? Yeah, Solomon sitting there, I did this and I did that. And it was, it was almost uncomfortable, wasn't it? It's supposed to be. That's the intention that Solomon was creating. Because when your life is about you, it is a life about sin and brokenness. That's why the end of that book is what? When all is said and heard, the conclusion is this. Fear God and keep his commandments because he brings every act of the good or evil to the light. That's the conclusion. You can't live for you. You have to live for God because he is creator and sustainer. James is giving you the same argument right here. Your problem is you. The devil didn't make me do it. I wanted to. So let's continue. (laughs) You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, why don't you ask? Because you don't want the thing you're actually supposed to want. My sin is ever-present and I fall short. What is my life supposed to look like? Well, let's go back. James is building all of his teaching on who? Specifically. Give me the Sunday school answer. Somebody say it loudly. There you go. You always remember the rules when you don't know what to say. (laughs) Again, that's a song, even if it shouldn't be. (laughs) And if you love that song, you're not a bad person. Just know I don't like it. It's okay. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, two things. One, I have never decided in my mind if it's blessed or blessed, so I go out of my way to say both. So if that bothered you, I'm sorry, but that's just how my brain works. Number two, that's not the gospel. Never forget this. We make a big deal out of this in the Sermon on the Mount. People try to make the gospel message what it isn't. Jesus is trying to get that crowd to look beyond them. It's a two by four more than it is anything else. The Sermon on the Mount is a whooping. It is, you think you're this. You need to be up here. Your, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, for everybody in the crowd, they looked at that and said, well, I can't do that. Scribes and the Pharisees are so good and righteous and holy and keeping of the law, and I'm not even half of what they are, and you're telling me in order to make it to God, I have to be better than them? See, the human reaction that says, well, I can't do that, forget it. That's the heart focused on who? Himself. That's supposed to be a reminder that you aren't because you can't. Which should drive the human heart to do what? To cry out to who who can? God, the one who was promised the prophet, the one who was promised the king, the one who was promised the seed that will crush the serpent. That's what that should do. It's the same thing that this should do. Your cure is not, I got this, I am going to do better. No, no, no. The cure for this is, I need to be transformed. My problem is not out there somewhere. My problem is here and here. You ask and you do not receive, verse 3, because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's why James has warned you already in this book. Go back to chapter 1 again. 
You must ask in faith. This is about asking for wisdom. Ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here you go, Christian. Here's your question of the day. What should I want? In Christ, what should I want? I should want godliness. I should want, I want more of Christ. Let's go back to Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Doesn't that sound wonderful? I ground myself in God, and I get what I want. No, that's, that's the wrong paraphrase, isn't it? I point that out because don't we do that so often? We get the, we get the principle wrong, and therefore we apply the, the truth wrong. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, ground yourself in the knowledge of who God is and all that he has done, and make that your source of joy and peace. And what will God give you? Your joy and peace, because it will be found in him, the thing that you are going after, the thing that you are delighting in. Now, the better point is, how do I get there? Because this is all well and good, right? I want to delight myself in the Lord so that he will give me the desires of my heart. I want to ask with right motives. I want to turn away from the lusts of my flesh. How? Matthew 20. The last shall be first and the first last. Awesome. Here's your question of the day. You ready? We're going to ask this a few times because this is important. How do I get to the end of the line? I'm serious. How do I get to the end of the line? See, this is, we don't, this is why I laugh about the kids, because do you remember being in elementary school? And the teacher goes, all right, we need to line up at the door. Half the class wants what? I want to be in line later. And that's what, if you mean, did you have this class where you have a chart? Like, I had, I had, I think it was like my second or third grade, where we'd have the list of who was line leader and who gets to be line leader next time so that it would rotate, so that it would be fair, because everyone needs to be a turn to be first. Our entire lives, because we care about who? Us. We want to be where? We want to be front of the line. Let me get up there. Let me get in there first. I mean, if you go to an amusement park now, you can actually pay extra to get to the front of the line. (laughs) I've often wondered how that works if everybody pays extra. (laughs) These are the things that I think about as I refer to them, the thoughts that keep me out of the really good schools. Yeah, like at that point, do you have to pay extra from the more people that paid extra? Because then I paid extra to get to the front of the line. Why am I not at the front of the line? Well, they paid extra. I get that, but okay, never mind. (laughs) No. <laughs> hey, now 45, 45, 45, 50, 50. <laughs> There we go. Christian living is backwards. Christian living doesn't ask you how to get to the front of the line. Christian living asks you how do you get to the back of the line. And Jesus helps you out with that in chapter 6 of Matthew. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's the beginning of this section. The end of the section is, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Who knows what the hinge verse is that's right before that one? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Don't worry about your food. Seek God. He provides for your needs. Don't worry about your clothing. Seek God. He worries about your needs. Don't worry about tomorrow. You live today. Seek God, and he will provide for your needs. Once again, we don't always like that because we conflate our needs with our wants. Scripture tells you, I don't care what you want. I care what you need. 
And your biggest need is who? Christ in his righteousness. Your biggest need is, your, is to defeat your greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy is not your worry. It's not your, it's not your job. It's not any of those things. It is your sin. And that sin is ever-present in you. Christ cares about getting you to the back of the line because that's how you forsake self. I, what is going on today? This thing is being is misbehaving terrible. Sorry about that. That is how you deny self. Forsake the sin that is in you and the sin that is creeping up always and follow after Christ. And we're going to continue on this. So verse 4. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? See, this is again why I like James. See, I, can, I don't get to talk like that because I'm not writing a Bible book. But James does, and since I get to read it to you, I get to talk like that. <laughs> this is all my favorite church growth verses. As James looks at the crowd and goes, you adulteresses, and John the Baptist calls them a brood of vipers, and Jesus gets to call them whitewashed tombs. I'm like, I am here for this. I've told you guys before, my life verse. You know, remember, remember that was a thing? Oh, my goodness. Cameron did this this morning. She goes, that song was written in 1993. That was almost 20 years ago. I'm like, um, um. <laughs> and she stopped and was like, oh, that was, oh. Because then you start remembering how old you actually are. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, that's why I'm looking forward to next year, because I can say this out loud. She can't hear me. She's going to be 40 next year, and I'm having so much fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> not that I'm maniacal or evil in any shape, form, or fashion. <laughs> but I've, I remember when life verses were a thing, and like, this is the verse that I've, I've ordained. Mine is Nehemiah 13, 25. And I beat them about the head and pulled out their beards and made them swear by God. <laughs> Need more ministries built on that. Jesus, I beat them for you. <laughs> No, because I, I don't care. She, she doesn't pick on me when I get old because I've been telling her I'm old for 20 years, so it doesn't matter. So no. What does he mean by this? You adulteresses. Well, you know what an adulteress is, someone who has abandoned what is supposed to be the love of their life. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? By the way, that's not new in Scripture. I'll go back to Hosea. This is the same language. Contend with your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife. And I am not her husband. Let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. This is not new language in scripture. You see Israel presented as the bride and family of God. And to forsake that and to go a different direction is like dividing a family, like dividing a marriage. Regardless of what Hollywood tells us in modern worlds, there are no divorces that are just simple. Sometimes they may be necessary, but they are never simple and easy. And I know some of you have been down that road. Some of you have been in that road a few times. I'm not telling you you're a bad person for it, not, not in the least. I'm just pointing out that the reality that you know is that every time a relationship like that is severed, it's hard. It's difficult. That's why Scripture uses this language to describe your relationship with God. It should be hard to break apart. It should be hard to rip away. Because when you do, you are destroying not just what is, but who you are at the core. To be able to pull you away from God should be like removing a part of you. That's not, a, that's not an easy process or a painless one in any shape, form, or fashion. Um, 
James uses this language. Hosea uses this language. Jeremiah in chapters 2 through 5 uses some of this language. Um, Ezekiel 16 uses the same language. This is how God thinks about his people. They are his. And let's be honest. Did it, how many of you taught your kids to covet? Like, was that on your list? It's right up there with lying. How many of you taught your children to lie to you? Okay. Now, how many of you have had children that have lied to you? <laughs> Did you eat the cookie? No. There's chocolate, like, smeared on their face. <laughs> and what's... So, mama, dada, mine. That's pretty much the list, right? Did you teach them that word? That's mine. They just come up with that one all by themselves, especially if they have a sibling. Connor didn't have that word until Jada showed up. Jada showed up and all of a sudden it was mine. <laughs> mine. Why? Because it's mine. It's precious. It's important. And I don't want you to take it. I don't want you to have it and mess it up. Now that's sinful when we do it amongst the earthly things. Um, when God does it about a people that he has bled and died for, not sinful. He should be jealous. He should covet his relationship with his people. Just like if somebody else said, hey, I'm going to marry your wife. Um, no, she's mine. That's supposed to be that way. Again, why the language is used. So, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't love multiple spouses. You just can't. That's why God uses the language. And by the way, not a new idea here. Not a new idea. Go back to Proverbs 7. My sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to the grave, descending to the chambers of death. That's the harlot who stands in opposition to wisdom, which is what Proverbs cares that you follow. Follow after wisdom and her paths, not the world and her paths. John 15 makes the same idea. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. You cannot follow after the world lovingly while claiming to walk away from it, forsake it, and follow after God. James is not giving you a new warning. He's building on this warning. Because again, Christian, where do we want to get to? No. Well, sort of. The end of what? I want to get to the back of the line. I don't want to be first. I wish to be last. I wish to forsake myself. How do I do that? By following after God. By following after not the things of this world, the things that are desires of my flesh, but the things that are laid out by God through Christ in Scripture that are supposed to be good for me. That's why James continues. Verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, see, when you're jealous of the things of this earth, that's sinful. When God is jealous of the things that he has made... That's the equivalent of you being jealous over your spouse. You're supposed to be. That spouse is yours. There's not like the community wife. See, you're laughing. 
That was a cringe face. I saw that one. See, because you're immediately, you immediately just know innately, wait, like, why is that broken? Why is that messed up? Because that's not the design of how God has made things to function. That's not how this is supposed to work. Therefore, when it works wrongly, we call it rightly broken. So let's continue on. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. We need to take a minute right here. Okay. <sighs> Rules for reading your Bible. I've pointed, pointed this out a hundred times, but I always do it just simply because I, I know you guys remember everything that I say, which is why I repeat myself. <laughs> so you know, like whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, you know that is the proper name for God. You also know that typically when reading the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, they will mark it off in some way. It'll be bracketed or they'll change the font size or something. There's no change here. James is not actually quoting an Old Testament verse, but he says when the, the scripture speaks, do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? He's not, he's not quoting an Old Testament verse. He's quoting a principle of scripture and applying it to these people. You, Christian, in Christ, have a part of God dwelling in you. You have God, which, now let me rewind that. To say you have a part of God is probably getting a little too close to the wrong way to phrase it. So let's rewind, pretend I never said that, okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be precise here because that's a terrible way to say it. You have God, his spirit, dwelling in you because of the work of Christ. Paul makes this point in Ephesians 1. In him, talking about Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. See? You are indwelt by the Spirit. He is not leaving. Which means, to whom do you now belong? You belong to Christ, because God is in you, and he's not leaving, which means you're getting to the end, whether you like it or not. <laughs> what James is trying to get you to do is, like it. To change your thinking, to align with your heart and mind, so that you actually are walking with the Spirit. This is, this is the hope of the wisdom of James, that your walk would be different because you recognize the reality of who God is and what he has done. Now, this is an easy one. Some of this is motivation, so this is a little bit of a manipulative uh, side ramp for me, but it's important, especially from this time of year, Christian. Never, ever, 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 ever forget that that indwelling of God is accomplished at great cost. Never, ever forget that. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, I'm coming back around. Your direction of knowledge matters here. This is not, God has done this, therefore I'm going to try really, really hard. Okay. Problem here. Whose strength did you just tap into? Yours. I don't want you to try really, really hard. I don't. I really don't. What do I want you to do? What are God's terms? Surrender. 
You're not in a battle. You've already lost. The world has already lost. Fast forward to the end of the book. This is one of my, again, I, I, I have a weird sense of humor and I acknowledge that and I've, I'm just okay with it. But it's almost comical to me. Get to Revelation 19. So the part everybody knows, you know, it's the, the, the guy and the, the, the hair and the eyes and the sword and the sash and the horse and we're riding into battle and the armies of Christ are assembled on one side and the armies of the serpent and the dragon are all on the other side. This is the great battle of Armageddon, right? It's over in like a verse. Like one. Takes the sword of his mouth, slaughters his enemies, and we're done here. It's, <laughs> it's not a battle. It's a butchering. They are defeated. This is, again, why the words on the cross are what they are. It is finished. It's not begun. It's not hopeful. It is accomplished. It is completed. It is done. I'm not a thesaurus, so I'm out of synonyms here. Sorry, I'm only so clever. I just, I, but I love that scene because there's no, there's no there there. Jesus wins. Everyone who stands opposed to him loses. Therefore, when you stand in your power, you stand as the adulteress, an enemy of God. You stand in whose power? Yours. I don't want you to stand there. I want you to surrender. What do you want me to do? Nothing. Except live your life unto the glory of God. Evaluate who you are and, you know, what, what question am I going to ask you next? Why you are. See, what matters? Why? You, the what's of your life. Where, well, what do you do for a living? How do you teach your children? How do you talk to the neighbors? All of these things that we worry about and, and give ourselves indigestion over. These things all even themselves out when you care about why you do them. That changes what you say and how you say it, what you do and how you do it. When the why is aligned. I want you now. I mean, like right now, actually, you know what? Right now is a great example. <laughs> I'm just gonna talk. Ow. I pulled a muscle in my back a few weeks ago and my career as a hula dancer is ruined. <laughs> like I can go to this side, but I can't go to that side. That's why I sent Cameron a text message. I'm waving my phone at her because she has the ibuprofen in her purse. I'm like, I need ibuprofen. So she ran and gave me four and standing up is okay. And then all of a sudden I move wrong. It's like, ooh, that didn't feel good at all. So <laughs> yeah, such fun. See, this is what happens when you get old. If getting old was fun, everybody would do it. <sighs> there you go. <laughs> so right now, how do you glorify God? I'm serious, right now. Okay, but you being here is just you showing up. Is that, is that the end of it? I made it to church. I've glorified God today. <sighs> no. <laughs> See, this matters, though. See, these are the things we don't think about. Like, you're here, you're sitting, you're listening, right? You're like, what more do you want from me, man? What, 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 what is going on here? I want you to glorify God in how you listen. I want you to glorify God in the way you pay attention and the way you don't pay attention. I want you to glorify God in the way you sing the songs. I want you to glorify God in what you think about when we pray. I want you to glorify God in what you think about while the communion elements are being passed out. I want you to glorify God and in line for the meal on, on Sundays most of the time. I want you to glorify God in how you drive out of the parking lot. I want you to glorify God in how you walk with your spouse. I want you to glorify God in all of these things. I want you to think about why. And warning, you ready? Okay, this is important. You're going to hate yourself for a few minutes when you do. And I'm serious. 
because you're going to start peeling back the things about yourself that you lie to yourself about and the things that you don't like. And that's okay. Well, I mean, they're not okay, but it's okay that you do that work. Because when you're honest with yourself about who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing it, you're actually having conversations with yourself that will change who you are in this world based on what? Based on the leadings of the Holy Spirit as your understanding of Scripture grows, as your prayer life is strengthened. So you have to actually allow for some input into your world and into your life. You do that by actually evaluating your world in your life. I don't want you to just look at, well, I did it like this. Why did you do it like that? Why didn't you do it like this? Was there a way that was aligned with Scripture? Was there a way that isn't aligned with Scripture? How do we avoid that one and follow this one? This is why I'm always telling you the Christian life is an entire giant gray area. Because I can give you the easy stuff, right? So we, we talked about this on Wednesday. I had twice now I've actually remembered when I said something. Yes, I'm so proud of me. <laughs> but I said this on Wednesday. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Second greatest commandment, right? Well, always remember that that's a summation of the law. Well, what's the slight expansion of the law? The Ten Commandments. So how do you love your neighbor as yourself? I, I got one. Don't kill him. Don't steal from him. Don't lie to him. And don't try to sleep with his wife. That's a win right there, isn't it? That, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good start, isn't it? Then Jesus shows up and tells you what? Well, you didn't sleep with his wife, but you were eyeing her pretty good the other day. Mm. Well, you didn't strangle your neighbor, but you wanted to. Mm. See, it's not just cleaning up my actions. It's cleaning up. Exactly. It's not just cleaning up my actions. It's cleaning up my heart. Who I am, what I want, what I think about. Again, change behavior short term. Change the heart, change the mind, live to the glory of God. That starts with being renewed in your heart, in your mind, by leaning into the work that the Spirit is doing, by following Scripture, by actually being engaged in prayer, by bringing cares and concerns before God, and allowing that work to change you over time. Again, slowly. What do we count as a victory? I moved! Yes! Because you know what we're going to do again? We're going to just, and now you're in the veggie tails. Keep walking. <laughs> but you won't knock down our wall. Keep walking. Uh, but she isn't going to fall. Sorry. You're welcome. And if you don't know that song, you need to look up the little French peas. Hello, Pierre. Would you like to join me in my annoying little song? <laughs> the, the, the peas are my favorite. They're my favorite. I don't like eating them, but I like watching them on cartoons. There you go. <laughs> Uh-oh, I got the sun involved. So, this one is a quote now in verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There it is. See, notice how it marks out that it's an Old Testament quote? You can see the difference in that? There you go. It's fun. Proverbs 3. He scoffs at the scoffers, and yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The, uh, the extended quote of this, the idea of this, is also in Psalm 138, which is important because... Who's behind the words of Scripture? God. Who is James basing his teachings and his wisdom on? Jesus is who? God. So who wrote Proverbs 3 and Psalm 138? Jesus. 
That's why I always laugh every once in a while. I'll read something and somebody talks about, well, when Jesus commanded Joshua, and people are like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That was God. So you mean the eternal second person of the Trinity was taking a nap? Like he wasn't paying attention that day. He didn't show up to the meeting. He just let the Father and the Spirit take care of that day. And he was like, no, no, Joshua's got this one. I'm gonna, you guys got this. I, I, I got to chill. I got work to do later. <laughs> See, we don't think like that because we segment things out and try to, try to adjust them. So what did Jesus tell you? Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. In other words, I need to move where? I need to get myself to the back of the line. I need to get to myself to where I'm last. So how do I do that, James? Verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will free. He will free. He will flee from you. You say those words back to back, I dare you. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Great! Awesome! How? (laughs) Scripture gives you examples, and this is why. I'm going to give you one from the Apocrypha if you're ready for it. Well, it's actually in your New Testament, but it's a story from the Apocrypha. Jude 9. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That's, that's Jude 9. What in the world is he talking about? Um, it's the, uh, the assumption of Moses, if I'm not mistaken. It's, a, it's an apocryphal story that explains that when Moses died, his body was not left on the top of the mountain, but the angel came down to take it up so that it wouldn't be used as an idol. Now, did that happen? I have no idea. You know what else I don't know? If it matters or if we should even care. Here's why. What's Jude's point? Jude's point is that when dealing with an angel, so let's just cover this. Who's got more power, you or an angel? By a lot, right? Like, would you like to go to battle with 185,000 Assyrians tomorrow? No, an angel came down, wiped them out in the night. Two angels got out, got Lot out of the city and did what to Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire. Destroys the place. So when an angel confronted with Satan trying to dispute over the body of Moses, the angel doesn't say, all right, bring it. Thumb wrestle for the body. Let's see who wins. The angel says what? God sent me to get this body, so God will deal with you. Not my power, his power. If an angel can learn that lesson and he's got all sorts of power and ability... What lesson should you be learning? 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Which is, again, an expansion of the same message you've seen throughout Scripture. Go back to things like Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So, still have one very important question. How? Because you keep telling me, Draw near to God. Forsake my sin. Get that. How? Verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Who signed up for that this morning? Why in the world would I want to live like that? This is something we read last week. That's wisdom in action right there. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. I warned you last week. Live from your deathbed. 
live from a cross. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Because as I told you, when you have uncomfortable conversations with yourself and you start asking yourself the why of all of these things, what are you going to do? You're going to hate you. You're going to remember your sin, remember your motivations, and start realizing just how much sin holds your heart. You're going to think about it, and you're going to be stuck in it. Now, I've told you this before. We're going to re-up this. There is a simple math equation you always remember, right? For every look at yourself, Vern, take 10 looks at Christ. Because in those moments when you look at yourself and you're evaluating your motivation and you have discovered that it is rotten to the core, do not stay there. Realize that in spite of that sin, Christ has died. In spite of my iniquity, Christ has loved me. In spite of who I am and what I have done, his grace and his mercy has been poured out, and I am clean in him. That is defeated because it is finished. Now live in that knowledge that Christ has paid my penalty. Christ has strengthened me. The Holy Spirit has not forsaken me. He has not abandoned me. And we are walking together. This is good news. This is part of the how, is the looking and realizing that I can mourn my sin and I can lament and hate me because of what is inside of me and I can rejoice also for the exact same reasons. Which again, takes it back to our beginning of the book here in James. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's apply that to what we're talking about. You've ripped the band-aid off. You've looked at the darkness and gone, and you've recognized that Christ has died for that and we are still walking. And you know what you can rejoice over? I looked at it and it was there. And what did I say? What does the pagan do when they pull the band-aid off? Well, that's a trick question because what does the pagan never do? The pagan never pulls the band-aid off. But if he did, he'd say what? No, he wouldn't. He'd say, all right, all right, whatever. Just put that back. I like that there. It's, 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 you, you have another bad 90s reference, like that stupid Band-Aid thing Nelly used to wear. Just <laughs> See, there you go. It's before your time. <laughs> Why does this matter? Because you rejoice that you've actually looked at it and you recognized it for what it is. Whose work is that? That's the Holy Spirit in you going, hey, hey, hey. Look at that. That's the ick. We want the ick gone. And you go, oh, that is disgusting. Let's kill that. That's a win. You know what we call that? Progress. We've moved in the right direction. We rejoice. We were honest and we realize that Christ has overcome and that he hasn't forgotten. So verse 10, where we finish up. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This is how I get to the back of the line. I forsake me. Forsake the desires of my flesh, the lust of my eyes, the things that I think are what I want, and instead surrender to God and trust that he will give me what I need. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, that's Jesus' words in Luke 14. Trusting in him, Mark 8. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Not my work, his work. Not my righteousness, his righteousness. Not my accomplishment, his 
accomplishment, trusting that all that he has promised he will deliver, that who he is working in, which is supposed to be us, by the way, is who he will bring to that good end and who he will complete that work. That's why Paul can tell you in Colossians 3. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. This is how we get to the back of the line, Christian. Recognizing that sin is real, that it is ever-present, and that we can't ignore it but trusting that it is Christ who has conquered it, Christ who has redeemed us from it, and his Holy Spirit who will strengthen us to walk past it. So we can have hard conversations, and we can look at the world and say, I want this, but why? I want to do this, but why? I want to live like this, but what am I going to say next? Why? Because when I get those things in line, what I'm doing is I'm changing my mind to align with the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in my heart. Then and only then does the way that I live begin to adjust itself, the way that I live follow. Because I'm, not because I'm accomplishing, but because I am resting. Resting where? In the one who has peace, in the one who has victory, in the one who has accomplished all these things. And as I do that day by day, he cleanses me and he strengthens me and he carries me a little bit further knowing that as I have walked with him, he will not walk away from me, and that the work that he has begun, he will complete, because that is what he has promised. Let's pray.